Sweet Hour of Prayer, number 
say again, Happy Mother's Day to all the moms that are here. I had the very good fortune of being raised by a very good mother and a very good father. But today I want to talk about my mother because she's uh, 83 and she's laying in a nursing home in Alabama. And the recent spate of events that I went through gave me some insight into what she's going through and increased my empathy yet again for what she's dealing with. And uh, I love my mommy. And so I hope you all love your mommies too. We are in Matthew 25, and I hope to get to the last two parables today. We should be able to get through them because they are sort of self-explanatory in as much as Jesus actually tells us what these parables mean. And that's very helpful. Because if Jesus tells us the meaning, then we don't have to speculate. But again, there are commentaries galore written about this chapter, chapter 25 of Matthew, that just speculate wildly about what these parables mean, usually because people get caught in the details or get caught kind of in the weeds of the story that Jesus made up. But once he tells us what the meaning of the story is, that's the end of it. Last week on Sunday night, at the end of the day, I was praying with my daughter, something that we do regularly. And she said, you know, it was a hard message you preached this morning after the Gladeville thing and Jesus as judge and Matthew 25 and judgment, judgment. And and I relate when you said, when did I become the judgment guy? I used to be the grace guy and now it's all judgment, judgment. And and she said, "Uh, Matthew 25 is just hard to hear. She said, because I fear for people who might be under God's condemnation. I fear for the people who Jesus said are cast into outer darkness. I worry about them. And then she said, nobody deserves that. And then she caught herself. And she said, no, I'm sorry. Everybody deserves that. I think that's the point. I think the reason that Jesus laid out these warnings The reason that chapter 25 of the book of Matthew exists is so that we know that God and Jesus are perfectly willing to judge. There are many comparisons that have been offered through the years, like if you put a diamond on black velvet, you can see the sparkle of the diamond more, or if you look at a star against a dark sky, you can see the sparkle of the star more, and I think that that's kind of getting at what Jesus is doing here. He's telling us really bad news, and he's telling his listeners really bad news. 
God is perfectly willing to judge. Jesus is perfectly willing to judge. And against that very dark, very black backdrop, he can then say, and I'm a savior. And that's the essence of what's going on here. Because were it not for the fact that we actually have a savior, if it weren't for the fact that the New Testament is all about Jesus saving people, we use that language all the time, saved, salvation. But the question is, saved from what? Well, in the Bible, we're told that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, actually saved us from the wrath of God. And therefore, we conclude that what God saved us from was himself. God saved us from the judgment <coughs> that he is going to dole out against his enemies. But we, strictly by grace, for by grace are you saved. That not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That fact that we are saved is an act of grace. And so saved from God by God through the finished work that Christ did for us, therefore Paul could write that we are not appointed to wrath. Because God's perfectly willing to pour out his wrath. God has told us time and time again that he will pour out his wrath. And God has a history of pouring out his judgment and wrath. When you look in the Old Testament and you see things like the earth opening up and swallowing whole bands of people. Or you see uh, God decided to put poisonous snakes in the camp. And everyone who came and looked on the bronze serpent was saved. Because God's perfectly willing to dole out judgment. I would think that Noah and the flood would be a clue. God's perfectly willing to judge mankind. And yet we have this idea, this thought in our brain, that uh, perhaps God just loves everybody. That his uh, grace is to everyone, everywhere, all the time. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God is a judge, and he's a harsh judge, and he's willing to dole out judgment, and... He's willing to save certain people for himself, for his own reasons. He's willing to choose, to elect, to draw certain people to himself for the sole purpose of demonstrating his grace. So that's why I think chapter 25 exists. We need to know that Jesus is judge. Now, last week we concluded with uh, the parable of the ten virgins which really goes all the way back to chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And after the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus said again, verse 13, then be on the alert, for you do not know the day or the hour. So Jesus has been saying, both chapter 24 and chapter 25, he has been saying, I'm coming back, but I'm not going to tell you when. So be prepared, be ready, have enough oil in your lamps was the parallel that he drew in the ten virgins, five smart and five foolish. So then you would naturally ask the question, well, what does it look like to be ready? It's got to be more than just sitting there anticipating. What does it mean to say your servants will be ready for your return no matter what time you come back, day or night? What does readiness look like? 
And that's the next parable that's in this passage. And then both of those parables have to do with his Jewish audience to the Israelites. And so they would naturally be saying, well, then what? The Gentiles get away scot-free? And that's the third parable in chapter 25 when Jesus says, I'm going to judge the nations. So it's judgment for the Jews. Judgment, be ready. Anticipate my return and be busy when I come back and make sure that you occupy while I'm gone. And then when I come back, not only am I going to start with Israel, but my judgment is going to be over the whole world and all the Gentile nations. That's chapter 25 in a nutshell, those three parables. You understand it? Okay. Well, then we're going to look at the second and third parables. And I promise I will get you out of here by 3 o'clock. So that's going to work out fine. Let's start in Matthew 25, verse 14, which is a tough place to begin because it starts with the word for. Look at 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps. So he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, those are interchangeable terms in Jesus' language and lexicon. And therefore, he's talking about the kingdom to come. The kingdom on earth, when, he, when David's greater son is unconditionally going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. That promise God has made to a descendant of David. He's going to sit on the throne and he's going to establish a kingdom here on earth. And so Jesus says, the kingdom is like, it's like five smart virgins and like five foolish virgins. That gives you some indication of what he's talking about in verse 14. For it is just like this. So he's still talking about the kingdom. He's still kingdom language, which means this is still Israel's language. It's still Jewish language, Jewish judgment being doled out. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. Okay, let's start interpreting right away. Who's the man who went on a journey? Christ. Christ. Yeah, he's telling them in advance, I'm going to go away. I'm going to take a long journey. I'm going to be gone for a long time. When I come back, this is typical Jesus language. When he comes back, he says, will I find faith in the land? Will I be gone so long that you're all just going to give up on looking and anticipating me? For it is like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Now, he's going to describe eight talents in verse 2. A talent is a unit of measurement. One commentary that I read said it's between 50 and 82 pounds. In this particular parable, he's talking about money. He's talking about silver. So we're talking about potentially 80 pounds of silver per talent. So five talents of silver would be uh, 400 pounds. Did I do the math right? Of silver that he's handing to this particular slave. And then two talents of silver, potentially 160, and then to another one. The first thing you should notice about this verse, verse 2, is it's not fair. He's got three servants. And he says, I'm going to give to everyone according to their ability. So he has already assessed who the quality servants are. 
who the servants are who are most likely to do good with his money and who the servant is that's probably not going to do as good. He does give him something, but he gives him even less than he's given the other two. So look at verse 2. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Now hold on to that phrase, each according to his own ability, because it's the man who was taking the trip who decided what every servant was going to get. And he decided that based on their individual ability. Now let me say one more thing. It's very common to hear interpreters or commentators of this passage read the word talents and think that it means like singing and dancing. Oh, you're really good at that. You're very talented. Oh, yeah, that's a gift I have. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about one thing only. He's talking about money. He's talking about the fact that this guy was leaving, called his servants, three servants, had eight talents of silver, gave one five, one two, and one one. And the whole purpose of this entire parable is so that when he comes back, he can have a reckoning with them based on what they did with the talents of silver. Does that make sense? Okay. So immediately, the one who received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. Now, we don't know what he would have done to gain five more talents, but he doubled his money. He traded with it. He bought products. He sold products. He did something with it, according to Jesus' parable, where he doubled the money. And immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two gained two more. So, again, he gave everybody according to their ability. He understood that this one was probably going to do great with his money, so he gave him the most money. This one will probably do pretty well with my money. I'll give him the next amount, too. But then what about the one who had one talent? That's verse 18. But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now we're going to find out in a minute that the reason he hid the money is because he's afraid of his master. He realizes that his master is Lord over all. And so he thinks the safest thing for me to do is to take my Lord's one talent and bury it somewhere, and then if he ever comes back, I'll just give him back his talent, and he'll be happy with that. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five talents more, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things and enter into the joy of your master. There's a lot going on in that verse. First off, the man shows up with the five original talents and the five talents more. He's doubled his master's money and his master says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. 
And that phrase has caught on and become part of our Christian lexicon. We hope that when our Lord arrives again that he's going to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. I would certainly like to hear that. That would be a good phrase. But look at what he gives them in response. And by the way, Dwight, this kind of ties into the conversation you and I had yesterday. He says, enter into the joy of your master. He doesn't say, now go buy stuff with the money. He doesn't say, well done, now get back to work. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. Because I, as Lord of everything, as master of everything, consider you a good servant. I'm happy with you. I'm content with you. Therefore, be joyous. And one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter in to the joy of your master. Now notice what the master did not do. He did not say, well, you had five and now there's ten. Therefore, you did really well. You did slightly worse because you had two and you only gained two. Instead, because he knows what every servant was capable of, because he distributed to them according to what he assessed they were able to, to deal with. The five doubled another five, and he was happy. The two doubled another two, and he was just as happy. Use the exact same words. So it's not about quantity, ultimately, in this parable. It's about faithfulness. It's about doing good with what you have. And he's given you what you have, based on his determination that this is how much you ought to have. But then, verse 25, no, verse 24, and the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, listen to this language, I knew you to be a hard man. Okay, now this is Jesus talking. He's talking to an audience, a Jewish audience, and he describes himself as, I'm a hard man. The servants knew that this is a hard man. Now he's going to describe himself as sovereign. He's going to describe himself as the lord of a manor. The lord of a manor was the one who owned everything and owned all the land and lived in the big house, the big castle. And so as a consequence, he wouldn't go out every day and do things like plant seed. But he would eat from the seed because he's in charge of everything. And so his servant says that very thing about him. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I knew that you were in charge. And I knew you were a tough man. You're perfectly willing to judge. Therefore, I opted for safety. Look at verse 25. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Now remember, keep the context in your mind. This is Jesus telling the story. He is clearly the one who's taking the long journey. He's the one who's going to go away and come again. And you don't know the day or the hour when he's going to come again. 
But he's going to leave gifts with Israel. He's given them the prophets, and he's given them the promises, and he's given them the oracles, and he's given them the Old Testament. He's given them all this stuff. Now, what have you done with it while I was gone? And the one who took it all and buried it did nothing with it. Some people increased it according to what they had. But this one did nothing with it because he was scared. Jesus described him as scared. Why was he scared? Because he knew his master was a judge. He understood that his master was a hard man. And therefore, he went and hid in the ground what was his. And then he says, and now you have what's yours. Look, I did it. Here's what was yours. You have it again. Ta-da, I'm done. You won't find the words ta-da anywhere in this text. Verse 26, but his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow. You knew that I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put the money in the bank. At very least, I should get interest on it. I should get something back. Even if you couldn't double it, you should have at least given me something. And he gave him nothing back. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, here's the way God thinks. Here's the way Jesus thinks. Fair or not doesn't enter into it. He says, therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. That's not fair. Okay, so take the talent away from the guy I gave it to and then give it to the guy who has ten, who doubled the five because he's the most capable, so give him the talent. And then he explains to us what the meaning of the parable is. In verse 29, he says, For to everyone who has shall more be given. And he shall have abundance, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. That doesn't seem fair. It does seem very sovereign, but it doesn't seem fair. Now, if you take this parable as an indication of Israel's state at that point in time, and you understand the money that he gave to each one of these three servants as indicative of different types of people within Israel and you think about some people who had the word and the oracles and the prophets and the promises and the covenants and all that and they did nothing with it then it does seem fair because they had all that they had something that no other nation on the planet had Israel was chosen by God to be his elect nation And so every person within Israel was responsible for making sure that they treated God rightly, that they paid attention to the law, that they did according to all the things that Moses had laid out, that they paid attention to the 613 rules, that they lived by the ordinances of God, strictly because they were like no other nation on the planet. And yet there were lots of people within Israel who did nothing with all that. And so Jesus says, 
when I come back, and you don't know the time when I'm coming back, it could be any time, I better come back and find that you've done something with what I left you. Verse 30. And cast out the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, that's hell language. That's the language of you're not going to be in the kingdom. You're not going to be in God's presence. You're going to be cast into outer darkness because what I gave you, you did nothing with. Now, because commentators have oftentimes said that the word talents actually means gifts or abilities, they have applied this to mean what have you done with the gifts or abilities or talents that God gave you? I think it's uh, it's a fair question, but I don't think that's the point of the parable. The point of the parable is I gave you my possession. I took what I have that is mine and I gave it to you. And you know that I'm a hard man and you know that I'm a judge and you know that I'm Lord over all. Now, what have you done with what I gave you? Right here. What have you done with what he's given you? You folks who have heard the gospel, who have been under the sound of the gospel, you people who have been left this great treasure of God's word, what did you do? Did you bury the word or did you use the word in order to have an increase? I think that's the whole point of the parable. Now, does anyone have a different interpretation of that parable for us? Now or never, here's your opportunity. Nothing. Now, that being the case, the Jews would naturally ask, well, then what about the Gentiles? The Gentiles have never done what you said. The Gentiles weren't at Mount Sinai. The Gentiles don't have a covenant with you. And yet we're told that through Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so there's some kind of blessing coming on the Gentiles. What about the Gentiles? Are they going to be judged too? Well, the third of these parables is about the fact that when he returns and when he starts judgment in Israel, He's then going to judge the nations. And the word for nations here is Gentiles, non-Jews. He's then going to judge the non-Jews. By the way, the fact that the third parable does mention Gentiles, does mention other nations, does mention the Goyim, gives us a good indication that those first two parables were meant for Israel. And now he's turned his attention to the Gentiles. Starting in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now that phrase, Son of Man, we've got to talk about that for just a moment. That is one of the most powerful bits of Jewish nomenclature there is for the Messiah. It's the language that Daniel uses in his book. That there was one like the Son of Man. It's a very important bit of language because God seems ineffable, separate. He's spirit, and, and therefore he's separate from us. And he has said things like, my ways are not your ways. And, and he has made himself different than mankind. And therefore, if he were to judge all by himself, we would have the right to say, well, you don't know what it's like. You've never been a man. You've never suffered. You don't know what pain is. 
You don't know, but the very fact that he sent his son to the earth and that his son became flesh and bone and was tempted in all ways like we were means that we can no longer say, you don't know what it's like because the judge does know what it's like. He took on human flesh, and according to Isaiah, when he was on the cross, his visage was marred more than any man. He was so beaten, so bloodied, that his physical form, his body, was racked with pain. He knows what it is to go through the hardships of humanity. And so he takes that particular language. I think it's important that Jesus at this moment doesn't say, but when the Messiah returns... There's a lot of different names that he could have used when Christos returns. But instead, he said, when the Son of Man returns, so that they would all realize that he was talking about himself. And when he returns, he comes in his glory and all his angels with him. How many is that? We don't know. We just know it's all of them. All his angels. Now think about that language for just a moment. The Son of Man returning in his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. Three of his disciples got to see just a glimpse of his glory. And that glimpse of his glory shined through him until it says that he was white. Or think about uh, Moses asking God and saying, just show me your glory. Let Let me just see a glimpse of your glory. And God said, I can't do that. It would kill you. And that's Moses And he says, it would kill you, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll put my hand over you to protect you, and I will make all my glory pass by, and I will say my own name. And then I will relieve my hand at the very moment I've passed so that you see the hinder parts of my glory, just that little glimpse of it. And Moses came off the mountain with his face shining, Because he had seen the glory of God. So, when Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he knows what he's talking about. It's the Greek word dosk. It's the Greek word doxa. It means the very essence of what a thing is. Which is why Paul could talk about stars having different glories. Stars that shine brighter and lesser. And he used that same word, that doxa word. And it means the very essence of what that star is is going to shine through. And Jesus picked up that word to say, when I come back in my glory, not only am I going to be glorious, read the first part of the book of Revelation, read how he approached John, what he looked like, feet of burnished brass and eyes like fire and lightning. And when he spoke like many rushing waters and glowing white hair and like the ancient of days, just all these descriptors that John attempts to tell us when I saw him, when I saw him last, he was nothing like he was on the planet. I saw him in his glory and he was magnificent. And he said, I'm coming back like that. And when I come back like that, I'm coming back with all my angels with me And there isn't going to be a human on the planet that's going to stand up and say, can I talk about me for a while? Everybody's going to say, oh my gosh, I've got to get down in front of him. I've got to to worship this one. I've got to 
pay attention to the fact that the glorious one is returned, and that's the point. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He uses the word glory twice there and uses it as a descriptor, as an adjective, to say that his throne, the very throne he's going to sit on, is going to be glorious. Now, what's the point of that? It means no one's going to get to argue. No one's going to get to say, I disagree with your judgment. I think you've got it all wrong. He's sitting on his glorious throne. He's glorious, and he has all his angels around him. You think you're going to peep up and say a word? You think you're going to argue with that one? And all the nations, all the Gentiles, will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one and another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's got two groups. In a moment, he'll say one is on his right hand, one is on his left hand. He is separating sheep and goats. And he put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And he's on his throne. And he's separating out the peoples of planet Earth. Then the king will say to those on his right, notice the language he's using. He said, the son of man is coming back in his glory, and he's the king. And he's going to sit on his glorious, magnificent throne, and he's going to say to the people who are on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There goes Jesus talking that Calvinist language again. There goes Jesus talking about having accomplished things, having determined things since before the foundation of the world. The Lamb's book of life, he says, was written before the foundation of the world. There are things that God determined he was going to do before time began. And now those things are coming to their fruition, but they aren't afraid to say, oh yeah, these things were determined before the world began. So even when he comes back at the end, and sits on his throne and separates people from all nations, he's going to separate them according to the determination that was made before the foundation of the world. I see you shaking your head. That, that's sovereign, isn't it? He's just going to do what he always knew he was going to do. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world because I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer, and they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink, or a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? Because if you're talking about the king of everything in his glory, of course he has no needs. And when he says this list of things, this litany of things, you saw me hungry, you saw me thirsty, you saw me naked, you saw me in prison, they would have to scratch their heads and go, you were never in prison. You, you never were naked. We never gave you anything. In fact, you gave for us. You multiplied fishes and loaves. You took care of us. When did we take care of you? And he answered them. And the king will answer, verse 40, and say to them, Truly I say to you, 
to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Okay, this is really interesting. Who are his brothers? Elect saints, could be elect saints, could be Christians. I heard you say that. But in context, who are his brothers? You said it, the Jews. And if that's the proper interpretation, then the whole world had better pay attention to the fact that Jesus just said, how you treat my brothers, the Jews, is how you treat me. He was Jewish. He was born to a Jewish mother and father. He was raised in Judaism. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was predicted throughout the Jewish Old Testament scriptures. And he has now appealed to his brethren and said, how you treat each other is how you treated me. Now that may be a proper interpretation. It may be the elect. He may be saying these are the elect. These are the ones that I've chosen out of the world. And how you treat them is how I'm going to treat you. In which case... Again, the world had better pay attention because how you treat Christians, which is pretty bad these days, but how you treat the elect Christians is how Jesus is going to treat you when he returns. Whatever the interpretation, whichever way you cut it, whether it's the Jews or whether it's the elect, either way, it's really bad news for the rest of the world because Jews are hated unnaturally everywhere in the world. Christians are hated, unnaturally, everywhere in the world. The world is on the wrong side of this equation. Meanwhile, just about everything else, have you ever turned on the evening news and seen, you know, today there were people protesting the Buddhists? You know, you never hear that. And you certainly never hear it with the Mohammedans. Oh, forget that. Anybody in Islam? You never see that. You can't even draw a picture of Muhammad these days. I mean... And even though they're killing people left and right, we have people running for president now that are saying things like, oh, no, that has nothing to do with Islam. Nothing to do. And yet, it's perfectly in keeping with that religion. And the world says, that's fine. But say to somebody, oh, I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. And they will hate you instantly. Which makes no sense. Because every Christian I've ever met is just going about trying to do good, trying to take care of people, trying to feed and clothe people, not doing any harm, trying to do good because their Savior did good. And they try to emulate him here in the world. And people will hate you for it. But if you kill randomly because that's the way your religion goes, well, then people will still love you and embrace you and get along with you. It makes no sense. Yes, ma'am. It, it does make sense when you think that you make them feel guilty. Yes. Christianity makes the world feel guilty. And what does that say about every other religion in the world? It means every other religion in the world does not make them feel guilty. They can coexist just fine with every other religion. Hence the bumper stickers. You know, they can coexist with anybody. But Christians make them feel guilty. And by the way, have you ever been out, since you bring that up, have you ever gone out with the intention of making people feel guilty? Have you ever thought, today we're going to make people feel really bad. Let's go. Come on, Dwight, get in the car. We're going to go 
Everybody we see, we're going to make them feel bad. No, that's never our intention. But the very fact that we say that there is a Savior, the very fact that we say that the Son of God came to the planet and that he's coming back as judge, which is exactly what this says, is enough to make people scared. Like we saw with the three servants. There were some who were just scared because he's coming back. Anyway, so he says to them, verse 40, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these, my brethren, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he shall also say to those on his left, the left side is the people who are in condemnation, (coughs) he will say to them, depart from me, you accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's lake of fire language. You get to the book of Revelation, and the lake of fire is described as being prepared for the devil and his angels. And yet there are people who Jesus himself says, that's where you're headed. That's where you're going. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Blessing, enter into the kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. This is a sovereign king who is separating people, which he knew he was going to do from the beginning. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger, and you did not invite me. And I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did we not care for you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of these, the least of these, then you did not do it for me. And these will go away into, look at the next words, eternal punishment. And the righteous will go into eternal life. A couple of years ago, when we were in Texas, David Morris, who's been here several times, taught for a couple of days on the topic of conscious eternal punishment. Those are three words that don't go together well. Conscious, you're very aware of it. Eternal, it never stops. Punishment. But he got it from phrases like that. Jesus himself said, these people, this mass of humanity, this part of mankind that is on my left side is going to go into eternal punishment. They're not going to go into uh, just the nothing. They're not going to cease to be. They're not going to stop existing. They're going to consciously go into eternal punishment. And that's the kind of thing that my daughter said, wow, that's so hard. That's so harsh and difficult to embrace. How? How can he talk like that? Well, you need to know that he's willing to talk like that. You need to know that he's willing to act like that. You need to know that these things have been determined since before the foundation of the world. And you need to know that he himself is the one who would call himself your savior. Because he's perfectly willing to judge. He's perfectly willing to dole out trouble and pain and punishment eternally. Perfectly willing to do that. That's what he and his father determined from the beginning. But he is also, thank God, willing 
to choose some people, elect some people, draw some people, bring some people to himself. And he's willing to differentiate the saved from the unsaved and then say to certain people, enter into the joy of your master. Well done, you good and faithful servant. I would argue that we have to make sure that this great treasure that he has left us, we make sure that we don't ignore it. We don't bury it. And if that's the case, then we're going to end up on the right side of this judgment of the nations. And we're going to end up in his presence and in his glory because he said so. You got those two parables? We did that in one morning. But the reason we were able to do that in one morning is he told us what they mean. It's right there in the text. And if you pay attention to the text and go with the meaning that he assigned to these parables, they're not that difficult. Now, starting next week in chapter 26, we'll get back to the narrative. We'll get back to the story. And the next thing that happens is the beginning of the plot to kill Jesus. Judas going and betraying him and the Last Supper and the death and the burial and then the book ends with the resurrection and I look forward to getting back to all that so that when you all think of me you think of me as the grace guy and not the judgment guy (laughs) thank you for telling us about grace that's the good news and then when we finish Matthew I think we're going to go to 1 Corinthians after that and uh, go through the two Corinthian letters, spend some time in Pauline theology, and as long as I can continue to stand and continue to talk and my body keeps working, I'm going to keep preaching this word in the hope that he'll come back and say, well done. Got it? Got it, sir. Got it. Any questions about that? Yes, sir? So we established that this this talent that he left us is is the gospel is this good news is his word like what's within the parable Mm -hmm. he only talked about money that only money but in application i've read so many commentaries that say that that represents abilities or that kind of thing i don't think that it does necessarily but i will apply it in such a way as to say Make sure that you're doing something with what he gave you. I think that's the point of that parable, is make sure you're doing something with what he gave you. Remember that he's talking to a Jewish audience. Mm -hmm. The Jews, according to Paul, had all the advantages over the Gentiles. And those advantages were things like the prophecies and the oracles and the promises and the covenants and, and the book, the Old Testament. They had all that that God gave them Therefore, Jesus could expect that when he came back, they would have taken what he left them and done something with it. But remember the audience. If I'm going to put it in a church context, which I don't even know if it fits in a church context, but if I'm going to put it in a church context, I'm going to say the point of that parable is to be careful with what he's given you. And since the application to the Jews, I think, is the word of God, then yes, for us, I would also say it's the word of God. And we have to be careful. He's given us this. He's given us his word. He's given us his promises, given us his covenants, brought Gentiles who had no claim to God into the family of God through adoption. So then what are we going to do with that? How are we going to live? How are we going to 
express that? How are we going to multiply that? We're not going to bury that. We're going to live that. And so I think that's the point. But for the immediate context, remember, first it was, I'm going to be back, and you don't know the time. That's the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins. And then since you don't know the time, make sure when I come back that you've done something with what I've left you. And then when I come back, I'm coming back in judgment, and my judgment is going to be all of the nations. I think that's the point of the three sequential parables. Mm -hmm. Make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. Good. Yes, sir? You said once that uh, you had trouble with the concept of limited atonement. Yeah. Is this a chapter that turns you around from a two-it to a tulip? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I could argue limited atonement from this passage, especially because the judgment was determined before the foundation of the world, and then he doles it out at the end. But if I'm going to argue limited atonement or particular atonement with somebody, I, I wouldn't necessarily start there. But yeah, I could go there to prove it. Anything else? Yes, sir. It would be easy to extract a salvation by works message from this passage. Yes, and this is why it's so important to emphasize that he's talking to people who are under the law of Moses. Under the law of Moses, yes, it's all about works. But if you take those parables and apply them to the church, all that Pauline language of it's not about works seems to be placed on its head by this passage, if you're applying it to the church, which is why I'm so careful to keep saying, remember the original audience. The audience is Jews. The audience is Israelites who were under the law of Moses who were supposed to be working. Make sense? Good. Anything else? Anything else? Say goodbye to the internet audience. Bye. They would prefer to be called the internet congregation. I think I could just call them the audience. So I say to everybody on the internet, what do you want from me? I, I had a stroke. <laughs> that, that's the way that goes. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.